0: Phil here. This is the season finale for Devil Music. Usually during the off-season there are no new wind episodes, but this year I will be posting bonus episodes on Patreon. I just introduced a new tier, so at $3 a month you can get access to bonus episodes and keep listening to the wind through the off-season. I'll be posting full interviews, mixtapes, field recordings, and more. Plus, you'll be a crucial part of keeping this show on the air. Become a patron now at patreon.com slash Thank you. When I called him, he appeared. At the crossroads flat dirt beneath a heavy half moon, the night was clear, as was my intent. I didn't need to explain my position. He simply offered the deal and I took it. We sat together and played until the moon shifted far to the west, and it shrank as it went, a slice, a peel an absence, then one full cycle again. I sat watching and picking, accompanied by an agile nocturnal violin. When the devil finally left, I stayed. A long time, till the sun come up. Then I rose and returned the way I came, guitar in hands anew.
1: And when I listen to it, it kind of, it, it connects me with him in a way that that uh, I, if it wasn't for the music, I would have no connections. I mean, but as far
0: as hearing his voice,
1: my name is Stephen
0: Johnson. Stephen is the president of the Robert Johnson Blues Foundation. And the grandson
1: of Robert Johnson.
2: I, I believe it's time to go.
0: Guy picking away at the guitar, that is Stephen's grandpa, possibly the most storied blues musician of all time, Robert Johnson.
2: Me and the devil, ooh, we're walking side by side.
1: Those songs is what I have is priceless. I mean, and it's it's a blessing to be able to share with the world. You know.
0: Stephen didn't know his granddad, but he spent a lot of time researching Robert's life. Robert Johnson was a blues man playing music in the Mississippi Delta in the 1930s. Stephen thinks that his grandpa tried to live a righteous life. But every time he
1: tried, it seemed like bad things would happen to him. Lost a daughter and, and his wife in childbirth. You know, and, and couldn't marry my grandmama because of
0: the type of life that he lived, being a bluesman. Robert's first wife and soon to be first child both died during childbirth. Years later, Stephen's grandma fell for Robert, and they had a kid. Robert, it seemed, was finally ready to settle down. I wanted to be a good man, live a good life.
1: Live life the right way. He tried marriage. Tried marriage a couple of times. He even tried to marry my grandmama, but because my grand great granddaddy was a Southern Baptist preacher, he wouldn't allow that marriage to be.
0: So Robert went back to a life of hard traveling, guitar picking, smoky bars and love affairs, which would eventually be his undoing. His almost superhuman guitar skills and unparalleled technique Plus, his haunted and powerful voice and the dark cloud of misfortune that seemed to follow him morphed into one of America's greatest music legends. That Robert Johnson of the Mississippi Delta had walked down to the crossroads and, in exchange for his unnatural guitar ability, had sold his soul to the devil.
2: And get a great in.
0: I'm Phil Corbett, and this is the wind. The wind with Phil Corbett. This episode is called The Crossroads.
1: My granddad born in Hazelhurst, Mississippi, uh at a very, very young age, uh he ended up living with his mom and stepdad up in the Delta. And during his teenage years, uh he became intrigued with the guitar. And he was sneak. And looking in the windows and all the, you know, the juke joints up in the Delta and listen to Sunhouse and and uh, uh, Charlie Patton and Willie Brown and um, play the guitar, you know. And he said, "Okay, he became intrigued. That he, be, he, he wanted he said, something. Ooh, something special about that, about that
0: music, you know." A young Robert Johnson uninterested in sharecropping began hanging around the dark bars in the mississippi delta he'd catch performances from some of the originators of the delta blues musicians like willie brown and sun house
2: your love is dead. But he'd follow me and Willie around on Saturday night. Yeah, Willie Brown.
0: This is an old interview with Son House. House was an early blues musician who was at the top of his career before recording technology was available to him. So these recordings are from him as an older man.
2: down the road.
0: Robert loved to watch Son House play. On occasion, the musicians at the juke joint would go take a break, smoke a cigarette, and Robert would slip up onto the stage. And
2: every time we stop for a rest and said, we will get out of the corner or something and go out to catch air, you know, get the guitar and be trying to. And be just noising the people, you know. <laughs> and the folks they come out and say, Why don't y'all, some of y'all, go in there and meet that boy, put that,
1: get that thing down. He's running us crazy. All he's doing is just noising the people. Get that make it all kinds of noise. Get that thing from him. <laughs> got a lay and a
2: You don't look like ten thousand people. Was standing around the ground. I didn't
0: know I Robert was not good at the guitar, and everybody knew it. He was just some local kid who the other bluesmen knew as an amateur wannabe musician. And in the winter of 1933, Robert left the Delta heading south. He was on a mission to track down his biological father. Noah Johnson.
1: And in searching for Noah Johnson, he, uh, he, he hooked up with a guy called Ike Zimmerman, a, a, a blues guy by the name of Ike Zimmerman. Ike Zimmerman uh, became Robert Johnson's mentor. My granddad stayed at Ike's house a lot.
0: But considering Robert's noisy inability, Zimmerman suggested that they stopped practicing in his house around his family.
1: And uh, across from Ike's house, there was a cemetery. And my granddad and Ike would go out in the cemetery and practice. And uh, I remember Ike's daughter said, uh, her daddy told my granddad, uh, Robert, you can play just as loud as you want out here because nobody's going to (laughs) complain
0: and sit in the cemetery. (laughs) Ike and Robert would sit on the edge of parallel tombs and play. Often they'd pick their guitars through the night, singing midnight blues to the dead. And this is where the story splits. In the retelling of Son House, he claims that Robert was away for just six to eight months. In Stephen Johnson's research about his grandfather, he believes that it was at least two years, maybe three or four. But when Robert eventually returned to the Delta... He stopped by some of his old hunts. Well, he was
2: gone about six eight months until then. He'd come back. And when he come back, me and Willie Brown was playing out to him. And he walked in. He said, can I, can I hit a little too? I said, no, nah, don't come back with that, Robert. I said, you know that people don't, don't want to hear that racket. He said, That They don't say what they want. I say I want you to see what I like.
0: Robert proceeded to pick up the guitar and cast a sort of spell over the joint. It was almost as if three men were playing at once. A transcendent sound emanated from this young man that they knew to be a noisy amateur. Something otherworldly poured from his fingers. And so in Sun House's telling... The room surmised that in his absence, he must have gone to the crossroads and sold his soul for his newfound abilities.
2: I got mean things, I got mean things all on my mind.
1: We were playing in a way that they, they had never, they didn't know. I mean, how in the world could you leave X-Water pretty retired? And then come back here outplaying us. What did you do, Robert? <laughs> and there goes the mess.
0: Robert did little to nothing to dispel this story in his lifetime. He even wrote songs about the crossroads, about the devil, hellhound on my trail, crossroad blues, and perhaps the proverbial nail in the coffin was that he would die young. The details are murky, but he was poisoned and he had recently slept with the bartender's wife. Two years before his death, he was invited to record in San Antonio, Texas. These recordings, plus a later session in a hotel room in Dallas, would prove to be his full discography. Robert was poisoned in 1938 and died a violent death at 27 years old. The first in a line of influential musicians to die at 27. I
2: got to leave my baby, well, she me so unkind.
0: Do you remember the first time you heard that story about Robert Johnson?
3: Yeah, I do. And and I heard it the way I think a lot of young white would-be blues guys in the 1970s did, which is that an older person told it to me, probably another uh, a slightly older white blues guy from whom I was trying to learn music.
0: This is Chris Smith.
3: I'm professor and chair of musicology and director of the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech University in Lubbock, Texas.
0: Chris also co-hosts a podcast called Sounding History, a great show that reframes global music history on a 500 year scale. In their first season, they made a piece about the fog of myth surrounding Robert Johnson.
3: So Sunhouse House was really the one who promulgated that story. Of course, Robert had died, and so Robert wasn't around to either confirm or deny it. But he's, Robert's not the only person about whom that story was told the blues man Tommy Johnson had that story told about him. And particularly a a great guitar player and singer called Petey Wheatstraw, who called himself the devil's son-in-law. So it's this kind of common trope that blues guys used sometimes as a kind of self-advertising thing. The thing about Robert is Robert died young and he died as a result of malice. And Robert had a lot of songs about me and the devil blues and hell Hunt on my trail. And he had party songs too, but, but he kind of, he wrote toward that, if I could say, and he was an absolutely hellaciously good musician. I had
0: noticed in the storytelling about Robert Johnson, that there was kind of this discrepancy between, depending on who was telling it, that there were certain people who were saying, you know, he left for five or six months, came back. He was the best guitar player I ever saw his grandson. He was like, I think he was gone for two or three years. What he was doing in that time was he was going off to learn from Ike Zimmerman, an older bluesman. And I mean, even say it is one year, that is enough time, I would imagine, to kind of develop a new style and pick up something if you're practicing it all the time.
3: Yeah. And there's another thing about Robert that, that in the in the early 70s, when I first was introduced to his music, when the myth was still very, very live amongst the young white guys of the blues revival. There's another thing that we didn't really realize about Robert at that time, because all we had was that Columbia LP set, volume one and volume two of King of the Delta Blues Singers, and it collected all of his 78s. We didn't have the uh, the alternate takes. We didn't have other stuff. So it was this almost like this fetish object. And here's this picture of Robert and in the in the double one, the gatefold one, there's this beautiful image where he's it's he's sitting in the corner of a hotel room in Dallas and he's facing into the corner of the room. This is the story we told on on our own pod on the Sounding History pod. And he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it because he understands This technology behaves this way if I face in this direction. But it became this thing like, oh, but he was so tortured and shy that he couldn't bear to face people. It wasn't anything like that. Rykooter said, no, that's not what he was doing. He was corner loading. Corner
0: loading is an audio technique using the hard corner of a room to bounce and amplify certain frequencies over others. It's a simple, yet especially at the time, sophisticated approach to recording. And it can make a single voice and guitar sound a bit bigger.
3: The other thing that we didn't really realize at that time was how much Robert was absolutely a second generation player. And one of the most important influences on Robert was that he could listen to records because that's where he really went to school. He went to school on the records of people like Henry Thomas and especially Charlie Patton. Charlie Patton was 30 years older than Robert. And the result was that Charlie started playing before there was recording, right? Right. And there's a, there's a kind of beautiful, I think, fascinating self-consciousness that happens when a developing artist can access inspirations in material form, in physical form, and study them, and like be a musicologist, and go to school on them. And Henry Thomas and Charlie Patton, who were the first generation recorded, they couldn't do that, not initially, and Robert could. So Robert's second generation, kind of like we were the third generation who went to school on Robert's records
0: the fact that robert johnson had just one record the 29 songs that made up king of the delta blues was a big part of
3: his legend i mean it's understandable right we want to mythologize artists we don't necessarily want them all we don't want to perceive them as as tortured necessarily although it makes a good story but you know creativity is mysterious it's a mysterious thing you know especially in an art form like the Delta blues that wasn't studied in universities that wasn't taught as a formal, as a, as a considered sophisticated art. Um, so it just, the myth is, is understandable because creativity is mysterious. Any creativity is situational. It happens at a moment in a particular way, and it would happen differently at another moment, or it happens in a particular way in a particular place, and it would happen differently at another time or place, or it happens in a particular way to particular individuals or combinations of individuals, and it would happen differently with other combinations of individuals. And I think we forget that also. I think we so much inherit this European romantic thing of the artist, either the tortured artist in their garret, right? composing music or painting that the world doesn't understand no one understands me or that it's this divine inspiration and and in fact the art forms that I'm interested in not just the blues are things that emerge out of circumstances and people and people coping with circumstances and for sure if you were a black person a young black man in the Jim Crow South, and you didn't want to work behind a mule or chopping cotton your whole life, then you were making choices to try to better your life, to try to have a a life that wasn't brutal physical labor, that even maybe have a life that would get you out of the Jim Crow South. And you were putting yourself at risk just by being that person.
1: I went to the crossroad, fell down on my knees, and begged the Lord to save poor Bob, if you please. Now, if you're asking for God to save you, it don't sound like you're selling yourself to the devil and asking for salvation at the same time.
0: The grandson of the bluesman who sold his soul to the devil, Stephen is now a blues musician and preacher.
1: I believe my granddad's at a crossroad in his life. It's like every time I go to do good, it's like evil is present. When I first began to really study my granddad's 29 songs, I listened to him and I understand uh, from those songs, I understood the life that he lived from, from being uh, a womanizer. To being a person that had wasn't brought up in a home with a loving mother and a father figure that he could see bait on a daily basis, to uh, being a traveling man, to you know being a a, a, a man that you know he he had his music, but you know being a woman, I was and drinking a lot of time he would drink to to actually play the music and to to do a lot of the devilish stuff that he did.
3: Crossroads are mysterious places, mysterious, spooky, risky places, places full of risk and potential chaos. In lots of rural cultures. They are in West Africa, they are in the African Caribbean, they are in the American South. They were in, in medieval Europe. That's why they put gallows and buried criminals at crossroads, right? That's why Odysseus mistakenly meets his father and kills his father unknowingly at a crossroads, right? In the West African context, that crossroads is not a four-way crossroads. It's a three-way crossroads. It's like it, it it's three roads that come together. And the reason is that. The reason that that it, I, I find that a particularly resonant image, is because if you're in a four-way crossroads, like the end of um, Castaway, yeah, sure, Tom Hanks' Castaway film, right? That's that really iconic, where he he he's driving a UPS truck or something crazy like that, and he stops at a crossroads, and the camera pulls way back wide, and he stops there, and and he it's evident that he doesn't know in which direction he's going to go. He can't decide, but that. He could also, at a four-way crossroads, even if it's deserted, he could proceed straight. But a three-way crossroads, you have to make a choice. Right or left. There's power in that because life does do that, right? And we don't know what comes on the road not traveled. And so that's why the crossroads are really powerful in Deep South mythography, as you know, and that goes back to the African Caribbean and the myth of the Yoruba Orisha, who was called um, Elegua, or in Brazil called Elegibo, or in the Deep South, as you know, called Legba. It's, it, that is the god of the crossroads. Elegua is the patron of the crossroads, and he's also the, uh, he's the god of chance, or chaos, or accident. He's also the god in, in a say, a santeria ceremony. He's the god who comes first. If you if you're doing a if you're participating in a Santeria ceremony the first songs are to him. You cleanse yourself and you sing and you play and you and you pray in hopes that Elegua will will come because it's Elegua who opens the path, right? It's the, that pathway thing again. Elegua opens the path for the other gods to come. This god of the crossroads and
0: chaos is deeply linked to perhaps one and the same with the trickster. A figure that appears in cultures all over the world.
3: When I'm teaching my own students, uh, they always think of Loki in the Marvel in the Marvel Comics universe, right? Because you know he starts out as being this this chaos agent, right? But lots of cultures have chaos agents because I think in lots of cultures we understand that sometimes things happen for no good reason. Sometimes good things happen for no good reason, and even more sometimes bad things. And so we mythologize it right? And say, ah, there's somebody who wants this chaos. And one of the things I love about El Agua is that El Agua is really a way of saying, yeah, but chaos is going to happen anyway. So why don't you make friends with it? Maybe even want to talk to it. And I think Robert did that. The God of the crossroads is an agent
0: of destabilization. And it's a God that has everything to do with pathways and direction.
3: I think that's a really good insight. And I think there's a kind of, to me, there's a kind of spiritual eloquence about understanding uh, a change agent, the embodiment, the, 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 the embodied deity of change, understanding the change agent as not malicious, but simply as a, as a personification, a deification of the way that the world actually is, right? And a religion that accepts that, that says, yes, the world is full of chance. And bad things happen for no reason, no appreciable, no seemingly visible reason, just as sometimes good things do. But there were moments in the history of this country in North America in which it became theologically important to find accident or change to be evil, to be malicious, to attach malice to it, to perceive a malicious intelligence behind it there's a great book by uh the journalist michael Hare, h-e-r-r who's now dead He, he was writing about the vietnam war he was one of the great correspondents writing about that war and what it was like to be there as a as a young american and he wrote for esquire magazine and then he wrote this book called dispatches and he later wrote the voiceover for francis ford coppola's apocalypse now um just he wrote beautifully and and, and very starkly and very sadly about Vietnam. And there's one point in the book where he says something like he's having a conversation with somebody and they're trying to trace, well, when, when did the U S involvement in Vietnam happen? Was it in 19, was it in 1965 when they faked the Tonkin Bay explosion, or was it in 1962 when they sent advisors or, you know, when did it happen? When, you know, when did it all begin? And he said, well, you know, you know, the really long historical view was, oh, it was when the French tried to hold on to it in the 50s. But Hare said, you know, maybe you just have to think back to those first English Protestants coming to North America and finding the woods of North America so deep and vast and scary that they filled up those spaces with their own devils. Mm-hmm.
0: is hot, the sky thick with smog. Los Angeles police helicopters endlessly whirr overhead, while pinwheels on the ground mimic the action, squeaking in the light breeze of the cemetery. Early summer in Compton, and I walked the rows, reading hundreds of names crouching to brush off the freshly mown lawn clippings. With some help from The Undertaker, I find the gravestone decorated with a small guitar. About 20 years after Robert Johnson's death, his mentor, Ike Zimmerman, left Mississippi. Sometime in the 1950s, he gave up music entirely and moved here to California, then became a Pentecostal preacher. I wonder if he thought back to his previous life teaching guitar to a wayward kid in the local cemetery. Two men joined through music and circumstance under a warm Mississippi moon. There's a good chance Ike was no devil, just a good guitarist who died of a heart attack at 68 years old, far away from the Delta.
1: And I don't know. I, I wonder to this day whether my granddaddy, uh, uh he, he dismissed the myth or just let the ride with it. I really don't know. I really don't know. But I do know is uh, the gift that he had and the skills that he uh, obtained came from a lot of practice and performances in this, in this uh, central Mississippi area during the time he came back.
0: Sometimes practice, patience, community, seem of another world, inaccessible and hard to believe.
3: Although it is a myth, although it was a myth that some of those blues guys attached to themselves or that others, some other blues guys attached to people like, like Robert, it recognizes that creativity is mysterious, that creativity is a, is a mysterious thing you have to create the circumstances for which that that permit the God to come or that permit the creativity to come, right? You got to be pure. You have to have the right intentions. You have to have your tools. You have to have your space. You have to have your sound. You have to have your movement. You have to have your community who are all working together with true spirits to make this magical spark happen. The God comes down and rides the body of the dancer or the spark of creativity emerges. And somebody says, hey, I wonder what would happen If you took this hawaiian guitar and tuned it like a banjo and then played it with the slide what 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 would that you know and people have these these breakthroughs and those breakthroughs in hindsight appear mysterious but they i i believe i truly believe they they emerge from moments of human communities trying to make sense of the world through which they're moving So to me, I don't need, you know, I'm 63 years old. I don't need to believe what I believed at 13, that Robert had sold his soul. I can be a half century later. I can instead be completely humbled and completely inspired and completely empowered by the courage it takes in conditions of great suffering, whether you're black or indigenous or brown or female or non-cis to turn around and say, I'm going to make art that celebrates my experience. To me, that is the greatest mystery of all and the most powerful one. And that's why I would sign that contract.
0: Produced by me, Phil Corbett. This podcast is made possible by listener support, and if you'd like to become a patron, head to patreon.com slash the wind to set up a monthly donation. You'll get the official Wind Listener patch, and you get access to a private bonus content RSS feed. It's like a whole other secret podcast, just for supporters. That's patreon.com slash the wind. Thank you to Chris Smith and Stephen Johnson for speaking with me for this episode, to Mendel Skolsky and to Eleanor for helping me search the cemetery in Compton. For more information, head to thewind.org, and if you'd like to leave a review on Apple or follow the show on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube, all of those links are on the website, thewind.org. This was the season finale for Devil Music, so that is a wrap on year four of The Wind. Thank you for being here, and keep listening.